Cheryl, thank you for doing such an able job of reading that John text. I promise all of you it is, in fact, abridged. We cut a solid third out of it, uh, Lorraine and I did, in preparation for this morning. But it is a, uh, a mouthful, so thank you. It's no accident that we find ourselves back in John this morning after being here last week. Most Sundays this year, our gospel readings will come from Matthew, but the people who put together the lectionary have very intentionally placed these two stories next to one another. To be fair, John also very intentionally placed these two stories next to one another, one in chapter 3 and one in chapter 4, because they juxtapose one another so well. Last week in chapter 3, Jesus had a conversation with Nicodemus. Nicodemus, if you'll recall, is the consummate insider, a leader of his people, a Pharisee, not for nothing in his place and time, a man. He's educated, powerful, privileged, just the kind of person that you and I would expect is supposed to be talking to somebody like Jesus. And yet he comes to him in secret by night in order to have a conversation with him. By contrast, today's conversation looks quite different. Whereas Nicodemus comes by night, Jesus meets the woman at the well in broad daylight, at noon, the sixth hour. Whereas Nicodemus comes in secret throughout this story, the woman at the well is fully exposed. And at every turn, she is exposed as Jesus' opposite If Nicodemus is the kind of person who is supposed to be talking to Jesus, then she very decidedly is not. First off, in case you hadn't noticed, it turns out that the woman at the well happens to be a woman. So it would have been highly improper for Jesus to have been having a one-on-one conversation with her particularly standing as they were around the village well, which was the closest thing that they had back then to a singles bar. We see this impropriety reflected when Jesus tells us, sorry, when John tells us later on that Jesus' disciples were astonished when they came and found him talking to her. Secondly, the woman at the well is a Samaritan. And as John takes pains to point out to all of us who were not history majors, Jews and Samaritans do not hold things in common. The two groups had common ancestry, but they had been at odds for centuries, and as we all know, family feuds often turn out to be the most spiteful. Still, 
despite it being a major societal faux pas, and despite the two of them coming from the ancient world's version of the Hatfields and McCoys, Jesus speaks to this woman as she comes to the well. Not only that, he asks her if he can take a sip of water from her pitcher. Not the most intimate act in the world, of course, but one that is seldom asked of a stranger particularly one of the opposite sex. She, of course, is understandably surprised that this person, Jewish, a stranger, a man, is drawing so close to her, and yet it also seems like she would be surprised to find anyone wanting to get close to her. The fact that this conversation is taking place in the heat of the day doesn't just function as a contrast to the story of Nicodemus, it also illustrates the fact that she is at odds with her people. Just like the old song says, only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun. So it was in the ancient world. Back then, women would have gone to the well to draw water in the cool hours of the day, either in the morning or in the evening. So while on the one hand it is serendipitous that she is there to offer Jesus a drink as he thirsts, on the other hand, it is also quite sad And it begs the question, why? Why is she out here alone drawing water all by herself? Why is she out here in the heat of the day, the most miserable time to do such chores? It's almost like she doesn't want to see any of the rest of her neighbors. I mean, remember, in the story, we're not told that they are avoiding her. They're not the ones who have changed how they do things when they go to the well. So why is it that she has changed hers? Down through the years, a lot of interpreters of this passage have sought to answer this question by zeroing in on Jesus' description of her life. To be fair, I think they are right to do so. But I think they are right for the wrong reasons. Not that this woman would have needed to be reminded, but Jesus very famously points out to her that she has had five husbands up to this point in her life, and the man that she is currently living with is not her husband. When folks like us read this verse in the midst of this story, more often than not, we say to ourselves, Aha! There it is. Five divorces, six men, loose morals. This woman should be walking around with a scarlet letter pinned to her chest. That is why none of her neighbors want to be seen with her in public. 
I cannot tell y'all how many times that line has been taken in this story. And yet every time that sermon gets preached, it misses something that is fundamental to the story that John is telling us. In Jesus' time, back in first century Judaism, women did not have the right to divorce. They couldn't do it. Only a man could dissolve a marriage, and depending on which tradition you were following, then the husband could very likely divorce at will without any explanation or any need of cause. And if that's the case, then I have to confess that in my eyes it reframes this entire text. Who knows? Perhaps this woman has in fact been five times widowed, which would mean that she has had an extraordinarily difficult life. And yet I'm not all that convinced that being five times divorced, set aside, cast aside time and again by people that she trusted, men whom she had loved, would have actually been any less difficult. And if you listen hard to the conversation, then you might actually hear an echo of her shame around this. Go, Jesus says to her, call your husband and come back. To which she replies, I don't have a husband. Not a lie, of course, but also not quite the truth since she is currently with somebody. Instead, it is a half-truth. An evasion with a ton of history hidden behind it. And yet into that history, behind that evasion, into the midst of this woman's shame has stepped what must have seemed like the most unlikely of people, a man. What luck has she ever had with men. A Jew, what Samaritan in her right mind would ever trust a Jew? And yet he comes to her at the well at noon in the midst of her loneliness into her reality as an outcast, and instead of treating her like the rest of the villagers, he engages her. He talks with her not as a charity case, not as somebody who is broken, but as a person. Jesus actually has the longest conversation that he has anywhere in the Gospel of John with the woman at the well. You just heard a portion of it a little while ago. It was even longer. And in the midst of it, it slowly dawns on this woman that he is not there to shame her, 
like the rest of them have been. Instead, as it turns out, he loves her. He loves her just like he loves the rest of his disciples. He loves her just like he loves us. He loves her just like he calls us to go and love all of the rest of our neighbors. Earlier this week, Tommy shared a good and helpful article with me and Britt. Despite what y'all might think, despite what Lorraine might have tried to tell you, we do sometimes talk about other things besides college football. In it, the author writes this. The mission of the church is to preach the good news. The preaching of Jesus and the apostles did not begin by telling people their problems. The crowds that flocked to Jesus knew their problems. Those that called out to the disciples knew their problems. Instead, the ministry of Jesus and the witness of the apostles addressed the obvious human needs of the people around them. Human needs that have not changed since the time of Jesus. People wrestle with demons, both real or metaphorical. People struggle with disease. People fall beneath the weight of poverty, of hunger. People remain in prison and need to be set free. People are oppressed by harsh laws issued by those who claim to speak for God. Look around you. Jesus says to his disciples as they see the villagers streaming towards them from the Samaritan village. The fields are ripe for harvesting. And as it was then, my friends, so it is today. There are people all around us who are in need. They know what they are struggling with. They know what their families are struggling with, what their children are struggling with. And they're all around us. They're even right here among us. I've been saying their struggles and their children, but in actuality, I really should be saying ours, shouldn't I? We know what our struggles are. We know the struggles of our families. We know the struggles of our family members. And sure, some of us might be better able to hide it than others. Touched up in beautiful posts on Facebook or beautifying filters on Instagram. Tucked away behind closed doors at home, buried under piles of resources that are able to smooth life's rough edges out just a bit. Blunted, perhaps, by other successes, influence, high achievement, 
popularity. And yet whatever we do or whatever we use or whatever we have to compensate for whatever it is in our lives that brings us shame, whatever we've done or failed to do, whatever it is that has been done to us, that forces us to face life's brokenness, our own brokenness. We are to read this text and see ourselves in this Samaritan woman because she can't hide it. She can't even pretend to hide it. And just when she thinks that she is no longer worthy to be loved, that is when Jesus comes to her. To her and to so many other people all around the world and down through the ages. Anyone, anywhere, anytime, Even you, even here, even now. Amen.